today on Ag News Daily. We touch about half the harvested acreage in the country, 25% of the country's farmers, and we're, we're physically in over 10,000 rural communities across the country. Uh, and because of that, I feel like we're constantly getting good information and intel from members and farmer owners that are on the ground every day in these communities. Listeners, October 19th. 2023 Thursday edition, the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney, it's 30 days from my anniversary. Your anniversary wedding anniversary? Yes, that's correct. I uh, hopefully don't forget between now and then because it. when I heard the 19th, I went, oh, shoot. And then remembered it was October and not November. Oh, well, that's good at least. And hopefully you'll be wrapped <laughs> up by harvest on harvest by then. Yes, hopefully so. What's your favorite breakfast food, Delaney? Oh my gosh. Well, not manicotti, I can tell you that much. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners, you can tell we have a little bit of fun before we actually hit record each morning. We do want to get you a little bit of a weather update. It doesn't seem like much today. Some scattered showers are possible throughout most of the Midwest. Still seen some high wind advisories for South Dakota and a little bit of North Dakota. Gusts could hit 45 miles per hour. Uh, we're looking at potentially later this afternoon sustained between 25 and 35. Of course, the advisories in place for those that are driving high profile vehicles or anything that is loosely attached to the ground. Missouri could also see 40 mile per hour wind gusts as well. Rain did fall in the area yesterday, uh, but they're not expected to see much more today as well. So it looks like just a breezy day throughout the Midwest today, Delaney. Not else, uh, not a lot of other excitement. Well, you know, I think we got some rain last night and it was, it's a little dark to tell for sure, but it sounded like our gutters were in full force. So I think we might've gotten a little rain here in central Iowa as well. Yep, just a light sprinkle is what it looks like as far as what I've seen this morning. So <clears throat> just spotty. That's right, just spotty. It's a good way to put it, Tanner. Well, hopping into some other news here. China reported the third quarter pork output was their highest in over a decade. And this is talking about output coming from China's herd specifically as they're beginning to rebuild here very strongly after African swine fever. But pork production in the third quarter rose 4.8% compared to a year ago, now kicking out 12.69 million metric tons, the highest for the quarter in at least a decade, according to Reuters. This is a huge win for China as pork is, of course, their main staple product. And they consume about half of the world's pork, Tanner. Third quarter production typically ranges around 12 million metric tons, and they're up over half a million metric ton compared to previous records. And uh, they're saying that the reason for this is African swine fever is now kind of, you know, at a standstill. Chinese breeders have really been expanding production in recent years, and the herd of breeding females was slightly higher than a year ago, as well as just getting better genetics into their herds as well. But China's pork output for the first nine months of the year has risen as a whole 3.6% from last year's data. And that's uh, certainly not necessarily positive here for 
U.S. pork production, as a lot of our pork does go to China. But uh, we kind of knew this was coming, that they were working toward rebuilding their own herd and potentially not having to do as much business with other countries. Uh, but I think it happened a little faster than what we were expecting here, Tanner. Yeah, and, and the pork industry can expand and contract a lot faster than the beef industry, but I would agree. It seems like that pace is faster than anybody else had expected. What's not fast, Delaney, is the house is still paralyzed with no, no leader in sight. Republican leadership is continuing to battle. Jim Jordan of Ohio continues his bid for speaker, but is facing stiff resistance. He lost his vote again yesterday. The Ohio Republican who made him made his name for himself by being a conservative agitator is now trying to get the support of the House in order to get all votes necessary to become the speaker. <laughs> the House could hold their third vote as soon as Thursday afternoon, so this afternoon. But yesterday, uh, that vote did not pass as six Republicans held out. Unfortunately, as those Republicans have received very many notices from constituents and from those that are looking to get the process through, Delaney, even death threats have been passed along, which is unfortunate. Jordan made it clear that uh, he will work to sway the interest of those that are not voted in his favor, hoping to compromise. Of course, this comes after the former Speaker of the House had been ousted. So quite interesting there. Again, Delaney, we knew this process would take some time. We expected it to take a week, but now we are approaching two full weeks since this took place. That's pretty intense that they received death threats. Yeah, it uh, seems way out of line, obviously, in my opinion, but um, certainly interesting to learn about. It certainly is, Tanner, but I'm going to switch tracks here just a little bit and take us into some fertilizer-related news. We've got a couple headlines here as we're watching fertilizer prices skyrocket back up after the Israel-Palestinian conflict here all of the eight major fertilizer prices, Tanner, for the second week of October, were posting higher prices and some big gains in anhydrous map and UAN. As we look at DTN's weekly fertilizer tracker, anhydrous here climbed 16% on average last week, whereas UAN climbed about 7% higher, but all eight fertilizer prices nonetheless were at least 5% higher compared to the week prior. As we look, though, at some conflicting news, despite all of that, the Ag Economy Barometer and Purdue University are putting forward that commodity prices and input prices both will fall in 2024. They said crop production expenses are expected to fall anywhere from 5 to 7, five to 10% across the board, Tanner, and input prices are likely going to come back down as well as commodity prices there as well. Uh, nonetheless, we saw in 22 to 23 a really sharp jump in input prices and they're saying that those certainly will even back out here as we head into 2024 but as we look at one final update here on fertilizer prices josh linville had a couple of good ones that he shared yesterday and he said you know of course israel is the fourth largest potash 
exporter in the world. However, it appears that there hasn't been a huge effect on the markets as far as the conflict goes. What he said does seem to maybe have cooled off a little bit, though, is the global energy markets, specifically natural gas, as they've fallen back since climbing. And uh, he believes that really there's not going to be a huge effect on production rates um, due to the Israel, Palestine, Palestine, Iran now potentially conflict. So uh, should just even out here. So I think he's suggesting, Tanner, that this short term jump we saw last week was in fact going to be short term and longer term. He agrees with the ag economy barometer, which is prices are going to come back down in 2024. Yeah, that's interesting. I think yesterday I received three or four emails from agronomists and sales agronomists saying that now's also the time to be looking at booking your fungicide because of their anticipated height of tar spot and other fungal diseases next year's growing season. So they said it may be in short supply and to get on that as soon as you can. Going to switch to the beef industry. Got a couple of headlines. First of all, last week we reported that the total beef output was down 4% from year over year, but that exports had declined 14%. Now legislatures are discussing the difference in trade balance as in 2022, 12.5% of all beef production was exported but 12% of the beef consumed was imported. So if exports are dropping by 14%, we now have a trade imbalance and are anticipated for 2023 to import more beef than we actually export. So that's going to be drawing the attention of a lot of our legislatures as they continue to keep an eye on of course, the price fixing accusations that we reported on yesterday, as well as packer margins, cattle feeding margins saw a $9 per head improvement last week. They are now estimated at $296 per head. The beef packer margins also improved, but only $7 per head, which makes the beef packer about $75 per head under water. So a little bit of a spread there. A little over $370 between the profit that the farmer is or a feeder is making compared to that of what the packer is. As we continue to keep an eye on wholesale beef prices, they averaged $297.14 per hundredweight. That is a $1.25 above last week. So that is a positive gain there as far as where we have going. If I look at pork industries quick to see where their markets settled out as far as packers go, fail to finish hog producers saw $11 per head profit. That is a $3 improvement over last week. Pork producers finishing saw $6 per head the same week or the same a week ago. Uh, just a flat move there. Pork Packers closed the week with $25 per head profit. So uh, getting to see a little bit of a switch there between the pork and the beef industry, but wanted to get that information out there. Yeah, it's interesting, Tanner. I was chatting with some folks the other day, and depending on where you're at, you might be getting more like $4 per pound here per hundred weight on uh, your cattle prices, depending on what 
what what uh, weight you're selling and whatnot, but we're starting to see quite a bit of uh, discrepancy here between different parts of the country as well. So that'll certainly be interesting and something to keep our eye on. But of course, we've also been keeping our eye on the Summit Pipeline hearing here in the state of Iowa. And some new news has come to light here that landowners are confused or were confused about their request to intervene. Landowners who are subject to imminent domain requests said that they have been confused by the testifying process and have had troubles navigating the state's process that allows them to testify against these eminent domain requests, according to the Iowa Utilities Board filing. They said several people requested to, quote, intervene, which was a process they didn't really fully understand, Tanner, before they signed up to do that. They said that they thought this intervening process was what they had to do to be able to testify in front of the board. Well, in fact, it meant that interveners will only file written testimony before the hearing and would not testify in person. A couple of interveners have requested to withdraw their intervener status and to, in fact, testify, but they said the whole process in general was very confusing for normal landowners to be able to understand what they needed to do to be able to testify in front of the board. And the other little update here I had was a landowner in the path of Summit Carbon Solutions, name kept out of this article, said that it was improper for state regulators to hold part of the company's evidentiary hearings on election day that's coming up. They said to attend or participate in the hearing, persons not residing in the local area of the hearing venue will be traveling away from their home voting precincts, some a considerable distance or even out of state, making voting difficult, if not impossible, for those citizens on election day. This will be an interesting one to work through here, Tanner, because, of course, the hearings were slated to to end here uh, by the end of October, middle of October here. And they're, of course, being pushed out a little bit longer. So hence the need to seep into Election Day. But we'll see how the IUB board reacts to this latest request to not have them scheduled the week of elections. Yeah, I saw that article as well. And the sinister person in me went, well, you can vote absentee. And <laughs> yeah, you, also, you also could vote before you go to the hearing or after you go to the hearing. Uh, but certainly, yes, it, all things need to be considered uh, as far as those hearings go. I'm going to hit a couple of just headlines that people could dive in a little bit deeper before I wrap up my news today. Tyson Food Workers and activists are striking or at least uh, protesting against child labor laws in the U.S. meat sector. Outside of the headquarters in Arkansas, a group of protesters for the use of child labor was pushing to improve working conditions. This is not directed at Tyson themselves as far as the meat producer, but to some of the producers, to some of the suppliers that provide them products. So Tyson Foods issued a statement saying that they would look into uh, their entire supplier network to make sure that everybody is following exactly what is expected of them in relation to child labor laws. We did see that Titan Machinery now has announced 
that their co-founder, David Meyer, has a CEO succession plan. So they will be working through that. The company's longtime CEO and founder and its largest shareholder will be uh, looking to transition his role as CEO effective February 1st, 2024. Delaney, we also saw Ukraine use some secretly shipped longer range missiles from the United States. They took the U.S. supplied missiles, which showed up last week and have been deploying them this week on Russian helicopters in eastern Ukraine. The delivery was used uh, as a major ramp up in their defense and their outreach battles. So uh, that was not shipped with a public announcement. Those were provided in private. Joe Biden was hesitant to deliver the tactical missile system, but so far it has been paying off in the form of an advantage for Ukraine. And then hitting the highlights of what is continuing to happen over in on the Gaza Strip, we continue to keep an eye out. Egypt has allowed to provide and uh, traffic in aid trucks to Gaza as the anger continues to rise globally about those nearly 2 billion stranded inhabitants of that area. The relentless bombardment is strike has risen many protests across the world. Uh, actually saw part of the capital experience one of those protests yesterday. Um, Continuing to take a look at what is going to uh, for support coming from the United States. President Biden gave his statements yesterday as he was there in observation, and that kill count has not risen overnight. It still hovers around that 3,500 Delaney. So but that's what I've got for high level headlines to wrap up my news for today. Fantastic. Well, I'm out of headlines here myself, aside from the markets. And as we look at the overnights here, we're seeing a little light trading action in the corn pits as December is down just about half a cent at 4.91. New crop beans up five cents at 13.16. And as we take a look at wheat here, December wheat is unchanged in the overnights at 5.80 and a quarter. Hard red December winter wheat down two and three quarters cents at 667 and three quarters. And December spring wheat is down a penny in the overnights at 732 and a half. A quick reminder at where livestock closed yesterday, December live cattle added 32 and a half cents. We'll open this morning at a buck 87.20. November feeder cattle shed 72 and a half cents yesterday. We'll open at 249.72. And December lean hogs had a good day yesterday, added 47 and a half cents to open this morning at 68.02 and a half. Tanner, we had a great conversation with a gal who is focused on developing programs in rural America. This program comes to us from Lando Lakes. So let's turn it over to Tina May to chat about the American Connection Corps. Tanner, I'm really excited for today's conversation because we're going to be talking about a program that was designed to help bring some vibrancy back to rural America and our rural communities. We're chatting today with Tina May, the Vice President of Rural Services and the Chief of Staff for Lando Lakes. Tina, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Delaney. So Tina, before we dig into the American Connection Corps that Lando Lakes has put together here, let's learn a little bit more about your background. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how you found yourself at Lando Lakes. 
Sure. Thanks for, thanks for asking Delaney. Uh, I've been at Land Lakes for over seven years. Um, prior to Land Lakes, I served in a number of different positions uh, working for the federal government uh, on Capitol Hill, writing a couple of farm bills uh, on the team with the Senate Agriculture Committee, and then a couple of different stints at the Department of Agriculture in D.C. And I hail from a family farm uh, in northern Iowa. So Tina, the the reason we wanted to have you on today, I was at Orlando Lakes presentation this past summer, and I was really impressed and engaged by the focus that Lando Lakes has been placing on investing and rebuilding our rural communities. And I was really excited to learn about the American Connection Corps program and thought we have to have someone on to talk about this on the podcast, because I think that, you know, when we look at challenges facing rural America having young people or having people that want to stay in rural communities is certainly one of the biggest challenges that I see from our perspective. So talk to us about how the American Connection Corps was started and some of the mission work that you're doing today. Sure. Uh, Thanks for the question. So Land Lakes is a farmer-owned cooperative. Uh, We touch about half the harvested acreage in the country, 25% of the country's farmers, and we're we're physically in over 10,000 rural communities across the country. Uh, And because of that, I feel like we're constantly getting good information and intel from members and farmer owners that are on the ground every day in these communities. And one of the things we kept hearing was about connectivity issues. And this, Delaney, was prior to COVID. Uh, This was um, having listening sessions in rural communities and folks saying, hey, uh, we understand everything that technology can enable, but we have some basic gaps in our community that we need to solve. And that is reliable, affordable, high-speed connectivity and bringing that all the way to the farm. And we started really digging into this in 2019 and 2020. Of course, then then the pandemic hit and it created such an enabler on this important issue. One of the first things we did was we started a a coalition of like-minded organizations, both inside of agriculture and outside. And an example I'll give here is we partnered with the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Clinic said, you know, if we go to Capitol Hill together to advocate for robust funding in a bipartisan manner for rural broadband connectivity, it helps us on the agriculture side, but it helps the Mayo Clinic with connectivity with patients in rural America. And it allowed us to walk into offices uh, that had jurisdiction on healthcare issues, for example. Those are offices we likely didn't have relationships with and probably never would have talked to. Uh, so it's it's deepened relationships, connectivity. Uh, it's allowed us access uh, to get the job done and to advocate for uh, our rural farmers and our rural small towns. Now, what happened with this, uh, we, in addition to the Mayo Clinic, we had 176 partners that joined us in, in that coalition effort, and we helped get past uh, a significant portion of funding at the federal level in a bipartisan way in both the House and Senate that became that, that uh, broadband infrastructure package that included $65 billion for rural broadband specifically. Now, what's going wow. on 
with that is uh, each state uh, is getting at least a minimum of $100 million. Some states are getting more in their allocation. Here in the Midwest, we see um, numbers in the billions with states getting a significant amount. Uh, those governors now are responsible for putting their implementation plans together. They have six months to do that. And then the rubber will meet the road, so to speak, or the fiber will meet the ditch. And we'll start seeing some of, some of this uh, get laid and get set up to take it all the way uh, out to these rural communities that have been without uh, connectivity or they've been lagging with low speeds and have honestly been been paying a lot for for poor connectivity. Now, one of the things we did right alongside that policy effort was we created this program called the American Connection Core. And the thought here was, how are these rural communities all across America going to understand to stick their hands up in the air to say, hey, we have terrible connectivity over here in this corner of the county. Uh, we want access to some of these funds. So we partnered with an organization called Lead for America. They're based out of rural Kansas. And we developed this program, which has now grown into the largest rural public service organization in the country. We've partnered with AmeriCorps, we just graduated our first cohort and we just enrolled 90 fellows into our next round of the program. Wow. So how, how this works is we take uh, folks that want to either move back or stay in their rural community. We train them up uh, with community organizing principles we give them access to a mentor. They have a host site in their local community where they, they share office space with. And then we teach them how to do grant writing. And we had, uh, we've, it, we've had an amazing success. I'm tripping over my words because it's, it's mind blowing how much energy these fellows have brought to this effort and truly how much they've gotten done. Uh, just in the first 18 months of, of this program, uh, in, in one, one year, these fellows have landed and brought in $55 million in grant funding that have all gone to connecting their rural communities. One great example is in rural Nebraska, where uh, a large portion of the county never had internet access and this fellow um, knocked on doors, created an implement implementation task force in the county and truly didn't stop until he had that grant in with the state uh, and was successful in getting that done. So we, we value what these folks are doing in these rural communities and we're excited for the growth and the future potential. Wow. So you mentioned a little bit as to how big your team is, but can you hit on that point again as to how many are active now and how many you have in training? Yeah. So we just um, brought on board our second, our second cohort of the American Connection Corps program, and we have 90 fellows in 36 states. These fellows will serve a one-year term, and then they'll graduate next August. 
So what's after the fellow graduates? What's the, is there extra role responsibilities post-graduation? Yes. So when we started this program, one of the secondary things we were thinking about was, could we use this program as a way to recruit and retain talent in rural America? And we are so pleased to see a number of these fellows choosing to stay in the rural communities that they're moving to uh, and honestly getting hired on full time with their host organizations who they're partnered with during the fellowship. I love that. And I'm sure it's creating some really important, meaningful connections in some of these rural communities. But share with us, Tina, a few examples, if you have any, of maybe some of the projects that they've been focused on, or what is an example of a fellow coming into a rural community? What what are some of the projects they've been focused on? Yeah, you bet. So last year, the fellows pursued 88 grants, and those totaled over $45 million. And that money all went to uh, building and deploying broadband in rural America. Uh, they connected about 7,000 households to affordable broadband connectivity. Um, they also connected over 2,000 households to new infrastructure. Um, it, in order to apply for one of these grants, you have to do speed tests at, at rural households, rural schools, rural libraries, even in, even in the barns. And they did just about 8,000 of these speed mapping tests. They created broadband action teams. Uh, they did that in 97 different communities. They hosted over 200 town halls and public workshops. So you can see we've got, we've got a lot of stats on this, but the amount of energy that these uh, fellows have and have brought to this is astounding. That is fantastic. And if we've got listeners that are interested in learning more about this or maybe becoming a cohort themselves, how do they look it up? Oh my gosh, we would love to have them. American, um, AmericanConnectionProject.com would be the first place I would send you. Um, and we're, We'd love to plug folks in. And one of the things I'd mention is we have a couple of folks who are um, retirees that have decided to jump in into this fellowship and commit a, a year of their, uh, their newly retired life to the program. And I will say the, uh, the, the cohort with that mix of, um, I don't wanna say older, I'd say more wise, uh, with with younger folks either just at a community college, we got a couple folks taking a gap year, um, post graduates coming home um, after college. The mix of that is so fun to see to see this intergenerational program and have have everybody learn from each other. I've certainly learned a lot from these fellows along the way. Well, that is such an exciting program, Tina, and we really appreciate you. I'm sure just scratch the surface of all the things that you're focused on with this, but we're excited to see how this program continues to grow and develop in the future. Yes, thanks so much. We got a lot of work to do, but we're really confident in our approach here and we're gonna keep going. We really appreciate Tina for all of her knowledge. We also made it a really easy on us for that interview, right? We were able to get questions answered that weren't asked, very thorough and very thoughtful. 
Absolutely. And it's just a really neat program to help revitalize rural American communities, Tanner. So I thought that was a fun one there to share with our listeners, but we're going to have another fun conversation tomorrow for our Friday interview. So you don't want to miss that one. But in the meantime, Tanner, what do you say? We'll let the people go. Let's let them go.